Hello and welcome to another episode of Let's Talk Robotics. I'm your host, Nikki Rousseau, CEO and founder of Exaptic, a robotics company based in Melbourne. It's a great pleasure to introduce you to our guest today. Peter Cork is a distinguished professor of robotic vision at Queensland University of Technology, director of the QUT Centre for Robotics and director of the Australian Robotics Centre for Excellence for Robotic Vision. Peter, welcome and thanks so much for joining me today. It's my pleasure to be here, Nikki. Thank you. <laughs> Peter, first up, what is the difference between a professor and a distinguished professor? Uh, they're rarer. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> at, at my, almost all Australian universities have a, have a sort of an extra level that you can climb to in the professor ranks. So at my university, they're called distinguished professors. I think at some other universities, they're called laureate professors. So it's just like professor plus a little bit. Well, congratulations. Even, Thank you. Uh, even more honoured to have you on the show today. So you're an icon in robotics in Australia. Where did your love for robots start? I think I was a geeky kid uh, and, you know, I grew up in the 60s and, you know, then it was all about electronics, right? Computers weren't really a thing that a that an individual could aspire to have. So I guess I drifted from electronics and radios into computers uh, when I was at university. And then, uh, you know, as a kid, I had books about, about robots. I had lots of science books. And then one of them I remembered that very distinctly was about robots and electronic brains. And it was really only my first job, uh, which is at the University of Melbourne as a research assistant. And we, uh, for an open day demonstration, I decided that we'd have a robot to play to play drafts. And so got this little tiny little robot connected it to a computer. Computer then is like as big as a fridge, right? Mini computer. And we programmed it to, to play drafts. And I think the person made their move and then the robot made its move. You had to type into the computer what the what move the human had done so it was pretty clunky but it sort of made me think about robotics and then seriously it was just a few months later there was an advertisement in the newspaper CSRO were looking for someone to do robotics and I didn't know this but they had a lab just down the road from Melbourne University and so I because my contract at the university was finishing and then there's this job for robotics came up and I thought yeah I'll, I'll do that so I applied and I was lucky enough to get the job so that's how I got into robotics. So it's basically been your whole career, you've been in robotics. Correct. Yeah. Uh, I'd spent maybe a small period, a bit of a diversion into Internet of Things uh, or wireless sensor networks, as they were called at that point. And it was interesting, but, you know, to me, it was not as satisfying as robotics. So, yeah, I came back to I came back to robotics because it, to me, it's just so, so rich, the technology is fascinating there's so many research challenges and there's also so many things that you can apply it to and i guess in uh my career at CSIRO, which is a very uh you know it's an applied research organization and so yeah we got to apply robotics to all sorts of unusual things and that was i enjoyed that a lot very interesting so your research focuses on on wheeled underwater flying robots for applications such as mining, agriculture, and environmental monitoring. Let's yeah. start with mining. What's yeah. been done in that space in Australia and what excites you about it? So there's an awful lot been done in Australia in automation robotics for mining industry. So I moved from Melbourne, which is where I grew up and uh, started my career to Brisbane 
1995 as part of a cooperative research center and the Cooperative Research Center for Mining Technology and Equipment. And so we were looking really at how we could take technology, which was you know, reasonably mature in factory environments and how could we apply any of those kind of ideas to the mining industry. So we worked on, on projects you know, with 3D vision to kind of figure out the shape of rocks, uh, to control sm uh, small hydraulic machines. And then we moved into a phase of controlling underground or haulage vehicles, uh, things we call uh, load haul dump units or, or scoop trams. So these were self-driving vehicles that uh, you know, drove through underground tunnels, picked up ore and, and took it away again. So we demonstrated automation of that, patented some things, licensed the patent to Caterpillar and it's, that technology is in production. And then we moved to open cut mines so you have these massive earth moving machines uh, driven, driven by humans. And so we looked at the feasibility of trying to automate those or partially automate those. And you know, we, we did some good work over a period of, I don't know, 10, 12 years in all these different fields of, of mining. And, you know, some of the big earth moving machines, you know, in one of the trials that we did, uh, the mine bosses, they couldn't tell whether the machine was driven by, by a human or whether it was being driven by the automation system. So, yeah, that's quite a, quite a good achievement. And the, the end result of all of this is we did a trial over a two week period and we moved uh, 250,000 tons of dirt. It's uh, <laughs> just quite a, a prosaic thing to do, but it kind of demonstrated uh, the, the reliability of the technology. And I think a couple of things I learned from that the mining industry actually doesn't give a toss about the technology that's used, right? They don't care whether it's a robot, you know, or, uh, you know, a trained hamster uh, doing the work. All they care about is how much does it cost me to move a cubic meter of dirt from A to B? Uh, that's their only metric. So I get really excited about doing the robots. To be honest, they don't care about whether it's a robot or not. They just care about the cost. And yeah. so that's, that's a good reality check. Well, it's the shareholders as well, of course. So, yeah. so, so would you say that Australia, are they, they recognise those leaders in this space um, in mining and automation? I think there's a, a lot of talent in Australia in uh, mining, mining robotics and automation. So there was the group that uh, I used to lead at CSIRO and this research is still going on at CSIRO. There's the Australian Centre for Field Robotics in Sydney, has also done a lot of very impressive work. And we did at one point, we did uh, one project together. Uh, so there's a lot, of, a lot of talent in Australia in this, in this area. The biggest problem I think we, we have as technologists is how do you get the technology out of the lab and into production? Uh, and often in Australia, the research is funded by the industry and they fund researchers to do the work and the researchers can demonstrate, hey, here's a thing, you know, we've got an autonomous thing. But to get into production, you've got to get the original equipment manufacturers involved. And a lot of this automation stuff, certainly a decade ago, it wasn't a core strength for them. Uh, you know, they were builders of machines. They, they knew how to make things out of metal. Uh, automation was very strange to them. So it's hard to translate research results into, into practice. So you've got to have a, you know, a, an equipment manufacturer uh, with some skin in the game. And we were fortunate for that in one of the cases where we work with Caterpillar. 
Well, I suppose that that sort of touches on uh, the state of our automation in Australia at the moment is, you know, where's the money for people doing this sort of stuff? And mm. um, hence the situation we find ourselves that we, we're not very strong in that field anymore. Yeah, so robotics has, I think, got two important roles to play in Australia. One is we can adopt robotic technology to improve the productivity of industries that we already have. And there are industries where the technology could make an important difference. Uh, you know, outdoor labour-intensive applications in agriculture and in mining in particular, you know, two very big export earners for the, for the nation. Uh, and, you know, we struggle to get labour. And you know, that's only going to get worse in the future as you know, the population gets, on average, older. And so, so that's one way we can use robots to improve the productivity of our nation. The other one is that we can create new enterprises, you know, high-tech industries that create robot tech, and they can then sell it either to Australian companies to improve the productivity of the nation, or they can export that. So, you know, I think they're the two approaches to robotics that we should be taking. Yeah. So in the agriculture space, um, what's happening in there and who are the people really pushing it? So there's a company in, in Queensland called Swarm Farm, uh, Swarm Farm Robotics, and they make small modular robots for weed control in broadacre crops. And uh, we were fortunate enough to work with Swarm Farm when they were, when they were, just when they were a very little company just starting out, we had a joint research grant with them and we uh, created some uh, robotic technology for them. And now they're off doing their, doing their own thing. There's some other robotic uh, agriculture projects at QT. So we've done work in capsicum harvesting. We're doing work now in uh, vertical farming. So that's where you grow plants intensively indoors uh, under very controlled conditions. Uh, another group at uh, University of Sydney, Australian Centre for Real Field Robotics, spun out a company called Agiris, and they're also looking at, at robotics for uh, all manner of, of, of agricultural applications, you know, things for figuring out where, where fruit are and... We yeah, and, and I, so on. Yeah. Yeah, I listened to the talk. I think it's Professor Sabay Sabi. Salah. 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 Yeah, and Salah he was. Um, yeah, 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 that's it. Salah, and um, yeah. he's on our podcast. I'm going to get him. I invited him, but he's very busy. And he did a presentation showing, um, well, of course, you know, using um, robots to check soil moisture, uh, what sort of weeds are growing, what sort of pesticide should be sprayed. You know, very specific and um, eventually good for the whole environment. Yeah. And then you can move from, from agriculture, which you can think of as sort of the productive environment, you know, the environment that we exploit to produce food. And then there's the, the sort of the greater environment, you know, waterways and forests and things like that. And there's also huge scope for, for robots there to, uh, to survey, monitor and understand what's going on. At my university, there's quite a bit of activity there. One of my colleagues, Matt Dunbabin's done a lot of work with underwater robots. Uh, so he has this small robot called Rangerbot. It's got a lot of cameras and uh, GPUs on board. It's a, pretty, it's a pretty powerful computer in a watertight box with propellers and it can do all sorts of surveys, can navigate itself underwater. And he had a version of that, which we call Cotspot, uh, which was a prototype of a vehicle to recognize and uh, control crown of thorn starfish on the Great Barrier Reef. 
and oh. got another oh. colleague, Felipe Gonzalez, and he's been using drones a lot for monitoring disease in, um, in vineyards, spotting koalas and gum trees, and also monitoring the health of uh, coral lagoons. I actually saw Matt's uh, presentation on one of the workshops for the robotic vision um, roadmap. Mm -hmm. And um, he certainly looks as though, just like you, as a person who absolutely loves his job, he had just come back from somewhere and was on his way somewhere else. And um, you could just see the enthusiasm for his work. And he was going on in his 10 minute presentation. He said, I don't think I've got enough time to tell you what I'm doing here. So for our listeners, if you're interested in it, go to the um, Robotic Australia Network website and um, all the workshops uh, that were held. You'll find Matt's presentation there. I'll actually put it in the, the notes so that you can um, check out what Peter's talking about here. Yeah. Matt, Matt is a force of nature. I've hired him twice, uh, once into CSRO <laughs> and once into QUT. And he he's a phenomenal engineer. He's fantastic at building very complicated systems, but he's also a very passionate environmentalist. And uh, I envy Matt because... He gets to do the geeky stuff. But he also gets to go on expeditions to amazing places, and uh, it's, it's always on a boat somewhere, somewhere tropical. Yeah. Yeah, I saw in his presentation, he's going, oh, there's me, and I'm going, that doesn't look like work to me. That looks like you're just having fun and you're getting paid for it. <laughs> so so in viral mental robots such as drones are doing fantastic work. Have you got any like specific examples? I mean, you've touched on Philippe now doing um, koala, spotting koala, mm. which of course is a, is a major Australian icon. Yes. <laughs> So they're the, the main activities that, that I, I know about at QT. I know that there are a lot of, there's a lot of drone work goes on uh, and not really being done by roboticists. I think drones are now so mature that they are uh, a tool that, you know, an ecologist or any sort of environmental scientist, botanist, uh, you know, can just buy one from the shop and, and use it to, to assist their research. And so the fact that roboticists don't need to get involved with these projects, I think, is a, a fantastic testament to how, how mature that technology now is. So I'm pretty sure almost every Australian university, Ag Department of Agriculture, the CSROs, you know, they've all got drones and drone operators and they're using that to, to push science. And yeah. from where I sit as a roboticist, I probably don't see that stuff, uh, you know, I, I, but, I'm, but I know it's there. Yeah, and it's, I think it's one of those markets, it's, it's pretty saturated, but it's expanding and the work that people, and certainly the work that Australians are doing is phenomenal in this space. Yeah, yeah I think we've been, as in, as in many things, Australians are early adopters of, of, of technology. And then there's all the other applications of, of drones for you know, monitoring the built environment. So, you know, people looking at drones and I've done uh, some projects in this looking at drones for monitoring uh, power lines and people using it to survey buildings and building sites and yeah, people are yeah, talking about now flying drones you know, indoors and through pipes and yeah what you can what you can do with drones is really only limited by by your, your imagination. Yeah, certainly good uses. I, I was reading just in India, there's sewerage pipes that they have to inspect at least once a week, someone gets killed. So mm -hmm. on average, oh, like that's oh, just that's a given. Shocking. Yeah, and now they replace that they're using drones to go into these sewerage pipes to see what's going on and get the information they need. Yeah, but if you, you consider the 
the maturity of drones, the drones that we know with the four propellers or, or the six propellers. You know, when we started doing flying robotic work at CSIRO 98, 99, the only vehicles available to us were sort of small scale helicopters that hobbyists at that time used. So they had the big main propeller and the little propeller on the back. And so, you know, we automated those and we strapped computers on them. And oh my God, that was, a, that was a really hard road to go. And I first met my first four rotor drone joint project I had with colleague Rob Marnie at ANU. And we had a PhD student, Paul Pounds, built uh, a four rotor flyer and it was a beast. Uh, and I mean, it hardly flew at all, but it was you know, the harbinger of what was to come. And, you yeah. know, five years later, you know, companies are building them and, and now you can, now you can just buy them from the, sh from the shop for way less money than you can build it for it's, well, it's exactly. mad so yeah. in 20 years i've seen it from a technology that didn't really exist through early prototypes now just to commodity item stunning yeah. were you did you were you aware of the world of drones and robotics congress i mean you were talking of course you're aware of it you were yeah, speaking yeah. before oh. me so <laughs> Hello. You weren't actually um, there. You no, were just I wasn't the there. <laughs> <laughs> and I wasn't even actually there either. My, my QT was there first yeah, and yeah. foremost. <laughs> then I came in. So, I mean, just that, that alone, I was listening to some of the presentations there. Absolutely. I mean, that guy that was doing the the bomb, the software detection of um, IEDs that you can go in the sand shifts, they can find it and they can, mm. and if there's one, there's obviously more than that. I mean, phenomenal work. Uh, exactly. That's very impressive. So, so you will renowned for your free courses in robotics. Yeah. Everyone knows about you. I have to say, I talked about this somewhere else and one of my listeners actually went, he went and he's Googled you and he signed up. So that's <laughs> it. <laughs> um, tell us more about this. How did it all happen? Um, now, and I've got some follow on questions. Uh, your audience, sure. how old are they? And sort of what level of understanding they, do they need to have to do these courses? Yeah, they're all, they're all good questions. So I... Most the bulk of my career at CSIRO doing applied uh, research and applications of robotics. And I came to, to QUT in 2010. And just before I came to QUT, I, I wrote this beast of a textbook. Uh, and I guess it had been bubbling around in my head for a long time. So in the gap between CSIRO and coming to the university, uh, I wrote the first edition of this book. It's about 600 pages. It's called Robotics, Vision and Control. And it's as a practitioner, it was everything that I thought was important for somebody to know about robotics and computer vision. It's absolutely not everything. Uh, and it's very biased by my own, by my own views on what's important, just then colored by the projects that I worked on. And that book's been very successful. So when I came to the university, I started to, we, we created some new robotics courses and we're teaching those. And so it was my third year at the university, my second year teaching, and I just was on a bit of a campaign to get fit. So I started to ride my bike to work. And I, the week before I was supposed to teach, I fell off my bike and broke my kneecap. And so that meant that I couldn't, I was laid up at home with my leg in a splint and on crutches. So I had to narrate my lectures. So I make my lectures at home using PowerPoint and I narrate them and then I upload them. It's not quite the same as being there in front of the class and waving my arms and walking around and having conversations, but it was the best I could do. And so we muddled by that semester. At the end of semester, I uploaded the videos to YouTube and I probably didn't pay it much heed for about 18 months. And somebody pointed out that there was 
a stupid number of people who'd watched them and even left nice comments. Yeah. So that was, that was fascinating because it meant that without doing anything, I'd probably you know, given my lectures to more people than I would do at QT during my working life. Yeah. Uh, so it made me think. And around the same time, 2014, people started to talk about MOOCs a lot, you know, massive open online courses. Yeah. And, you know, all the big universities were talking about MOOCs. And so uh, I convinced uh, management of QT. They didn't need that much management, um, that much convincing. They were very supportive. We decided that we would do turn that third year robotics course of QT into a MOOC. And so fantastic team of people that I worked with, learning designers and graphics people and videographers, uh, all manner of people, project managers. And so we built these MOOCs. We built two six-week MOOCs. And so each each week you did two hours, you watched two hours of lessons that I'd created, and then you did assignments and, and all of that. And that was kind of where MOOCs were at uh, in 2014, 2015. We probably uh, had enrollments, 150,000 people over a few runs of these MOOCs. And that's, they're stunning numbers. Now you get a number like that, it doesn't mean 150,000 students are paying attention. Yeah. Uh, you probably, it's more like two or 3% actually pay attention and maybe 1% will actually do all the assignments and pop out the end. But there's no cost in having all those extra people. There's no incremental cost yeah. for having more students. And so that's a really interesting model. I teach 80 students a year. And so I'm not going to live long enough to teach, you know, 150,000 yeah. students in the traditional way. So that was super interesting. But after a while, uh, for various reasons, uh, the MOOCs were shut down at the universities. So I had this course and it was organized as a whole lot of short lessons. Each lesson was about eight minutes long. And so if you watched an, two hours a week, it was a bunch of these eight minute lessons because the evidence is that people can't concentrate for more than eight minutes. So why on earth we subject our students to two hour lectures when all the Educational research would say eight minutes is all you should all you should do. I don't know. So I had two hundred eight minute segments about robotics and vision, and so I was a bit sad that they no one was going to be able to see them. And then again, with a little bit more convincing, the university created this thing called the Robot Academy. And so the Robot Academy is a website where all these two hundred lessons live. And what's the, the fundamental difference between a MOOC and the Robot Academy is with a MOOC, it's a course. So it starts on a particular date and you sign up for it, you register for it. And then, you know, the lessons come out one by one by one. And there you go. So you have to kind of synchronize yourself with the course, which is inconvenient. And you may not want to know everything in the course. You might just want to know what's the third thing in week four. That might be all you're interested in. So the Robot Academy, because it's like an encyclopedia, you can just go... And you can put in a particular keyword, the thing you might be interested in, Jacobians or forward kinematics or ethics. Just type it in. Up will pop the lessons that are related to that and you can watch them. And if there's something you don't understand because it was covered in an earlier lesson, well, you can just go back and watch the earlier lessons and then come back to this thing. So it's, it's random access. And I think that actually sort of got forced into that position but actually i think it's the right way to do this so the motto is you know anywhere anytime so the demographic it's it's people from from teens through 60s 
but the peak is definitely 20s and 30 somethings yeah so probably university age group uh, and you know maybe maybe young young professionals or people yeah I, I think that that's probably where it is but it's broad but the peak is 20s and 30s Google Analytics tells me that 46% of the users are female. And if that's really the case, that's extraordinary because we struggle to attract women into engineering courses. And I know my face-to-face -face lectures, it's, it's 15% or less of women in the classroom. So that's, that's fascinating. Now, not it's a third-year university course, so you need to keep that in mind. But when we looked at it, when we created the Robot Academy, it occurred to us that there's some material that you don't need any university education for. You don't even need any maths for. And so there are lessons about what's a robot and why do we need robots and ethics and what's the future of work and those sorts of things. So we created a rating system. So every lesson on the Academy has got a rating between one and five. So one, anybody should be able to understand it and hopefully get some value from it up to five, yeah, you probably need to have a few years of engineering maths under your belt to, uh, to get value from it. So who updates the lessons now? Are they current? Well, say, you know, it's something on ethics three years ago and some things have changed slightly. We've, you know, a paper's been published or whatever. Does someone go in there and update these things? Uh, in an ideal world, yes, Nikki, they would. But, uh, <laughs> Come that, not, Peter. That, that, would, that would be me, the person who goes in there I'm, and I'm things. <laughs> There's someone I'm referring to. Yeah, yeah so yeah, the lessons were created in 20, 2015, 2014-15. So, yes, some of them are a bit dated. Um, there is a comment section. So if you register with the site, you can ask a question. And every week I try and address questions that people ask during the week. Uh, you know, there's not too many of them. There's, you know, most weeks there's you know, just, a few, just a handful of questions. So that's manageable. I am right now creating brand new material. So the what's there in terms of robotics is all about arm robotics, which is very classic. It's, yeah. you know, the, the first form of robots, arm robots. I'm building now a bunch of content around mobile robots, and that will go up uh, early next year. And then after that, uh, I'm planning to redo my book. And after that, hopefully I'll come, I'll cir circle back and do a pass over some of the lessons. Some of them are in, are in good shape. They don't need changing. Some of them, some of them do. Uh, so yeah that, it's a job for your PhD students if you go listen you're annoying me so your, your as punishment part of your task is go through all my content tell me what needs to be updated you'll keep them busy for ages yeah no we've got lists of things that need that need touching up and sometimes I can just put a comment on the lesson and say hey you know this thing is not right uh, yeah. it needs to be fixed um, the lessons have all got uh, English language subtitles which you can enable yeah. And I got contacted by uh, a bunch of Portuguese students, uh, Brazilian students, I'm sorry, yeah. earlier this year. Uh, and they wanted to create a set of subtitles for Portuguese. Yeah. Portuguese is like the third most common language on the planet. That's pretty awesome. So they're beavering away and they took all the transcript files uh, with all the time code information in them and they are turning them into Portuguese. And then I will upload them. So then you could watch the Robot Academy uh, with with captions in Portuguese or English, I and think I encourage yeah. anyone who who's interested has got the effort to do this to interested in porting that it across to a different language. 
uh, yeah, get in touch with me. That's phenomenal. Actually, I had a um, one of my LinkedIn contacts that sent me a message saying her son's in year 11 and very interested in robots and are there any free courses? And I said, you're asking the right person. Go <laughs> off to Peter Cork, type in there, you will find all his material. So she said, thank you very much. He will start there. So I can tell you, you're doing a lot of good out in the world. So it's absolutely phenomenal. And the reach is global. This is the fascinating thing, Nikki. Yeah. Again, I look at Google Analytics and it tells me that you've got followings in you know, all the sort of you know, major Western countries you'd expect, mm -hmm. Canada, US, all through Europe, huge following in China, India, uh, and then we move into the developing world. So, you know, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Egypt, Central America, uh, African countries. Yeah. And, and people write me the most wonderful testimonials and they say that, you know, they wouldn't have the opportunity to go to university, uh, but, you know, they can learn robotics here. Or that if they, even they went to their university, there's no robotics on offer. So, you know, they can get some sort of robotics education, bootstrap themselves somewhat. Oh, through my online resources and the online resources of others. And I think, you know, if robotics is going to be this huge boom industry, which I believe it will be, we're going to need to get talent. We're going to need to have smart people who know robotics. And so, you know, we should be, you know, finding the best and the brightest wherever they are in the world, irrespective of the educational opportunities uh, that they've been able to, uh, been able to find. Well, yes, and I think a lot of these people, as you mentioned, not only is it not, um, it's not at the university, but they can't necessarily even afford to go to university. And with these yeah. free courses, like you're just opening up a whole new world to them. In the, in the MOOCs, when they were running, we actually had uh, an assignment uh, in parallel. So students would actually try and put what they learned in the course into practice and build a robot. And of course, if you're in the West, you could probably just buy a Lego Mindstorm kit and program that. Mm -hmm. But for some of the, many of the students, that was just not in their price range. So they just came up with the most innovative solutions, gorgeous robots, uh, yeah. you know, built for not very much money, but did the job perfectly. So it's all wonderful uh, inspiration and innovation there. It's great to see. Yeah, I'd, I'd imagine that would give you that gives me a kick so I can't imagine what it would give to you to get a letter going dear Peter I just want to tell you how much I like you so yeah, that's, that's wonderful yeah so you're, you're you mentioned a textbook you you authored several books so are they all uni textbooks and are you um are you busy writing another one yeah so most of the, the books are like Oftentimes they're proceedings of conferences, but there's the one book, which is my textbook. Uh, so I've done the second edition of a textbook that came out in 2017. And I'm planning to take effectively leave from the university for about six months next year to do the third edition uh, of the book. There'll be a fundamental difference uh, with the third edition of the book, uh, and that's in terms of the, the computer language. So the book is very chatty. It uses lots of code examples to illustrate things because to me, if I can code it, it makes it real. Mm -hmm. So the book ships with a lot of software and I encourage students to you know, read along and you know, do the examples that are in the book. And the language that was used for the first two editions of the book is MATLAB. You know, MATLAB's a language that's used for, you know, used for education and used for research. And, you know, I've been using MATLAB for nearly 30 years. I'm very familiar with it, but it is a language that you need to buy from a company. You need to buy it from the MathWorks. 
and they're a wonderful company. I spent a sabbatical with them. But for a lot of students around the world who don't have very much money, they can't afford to buy a MATLAB license. Mm -hmm. So the new edition of the book will be written using Python as the language for instruction. And Python is incredibly common language, very popular language, third most popular language on the planet. And anybody who's getting into robotics should learn Python. So there's a lot in the book that needs to change in the uh in the shift to Python, I have to change all my own software from MATLAB to Python. I've got a big project at the moment with a couple of my uh, PhD students doing that. And then I have to do the hard work in writing the book. So that's hopefully will be available. Probably this is a long, this long-term things, probably 2022 is when the Python version of the book will come out. But the Python version of the software is out already. Okay, so if you're going to take six months leave, what happens to your PhD students that are enrolled with you now? Uh, absolutely, I still look after them. So, <laughs> so uh, not really a sabbatical. <laughs> no, not as not as, as much of a sabbatical as I would like. But no, absolutely, you got to look after your PhD students. So yeah. I'll probably spend you know half, half a day to a day a week uh, on things that are inescapable, but the bulk of, of university meetings uh, I am hoping to escape from. Uh, and, and my experience previously when, when doing a book is you need to go, I've generally gone away, uh, but I can't go away next year because of COVID, is, is to go away and just single-mindedly focus on it. You can't, I can't write a book in, in, in bits, and, bits and pieces. And so, yeah, I need to do total focus for days at a time. Otherwise, I make no progress. So how many PhD students do you actually have at any given time? Not, not that many. Yeah. Uh, I think I've only got three or four PhD students at the moment that I'm, if you like, called the principal supervisor of, but I'm the associate supervisor for probably a dozen, a dozen more. And, you know, that's one of the more enjoyable parts of the job, actually, is to interact with, with smart young people and try and, you know, in, encourage them to, to learn, to think, and you know, see them off on a generally in a wonderful career. So our PhD students, not just my own, but from the robotics group at QUT, have you know, gone all around the world to fabulous job opportunities. I used to be a bit sad that they felt that they needed to leave the country. Uh, but to be honest, there are better opportunities overseas than there are, than there are here. And so I think it's my job to Try to work with others here to create a technology ecosystem uh, that will encourage these smart people to come back. Mm. And, you know, I think as a nation, we, COVID's shown that we're kind of weak when it comes to sovereign capability. We need to build sovereign capability across the board in all sorts of industries, but we need to have it in robotics and AI and computer vision. So there's all sorts of people um, having this conversation with at the moment is how do we bootstrap a, you know, a solid tech sector here? And yeah, I think that's what I need to put a lot of effort into over, over coming years to ensure that there's a, you know, a nice thing for these smart kids to come back to. Yeah, I was chatting to Michael Milford, who I'm, I'm sure you know him anyway, because he's right up there in your um, area. And he was saying the same thing, that he left and he went overseas and he, he, he was teaching and doing stuff. But the important thing is he came back. And, hmm. you know, it's the coming back because you're bringing all sorts of new knowledge and stuff. And, he, and you know, he pointed out he actually enjoys going overseas because he gets all sorts of ideas that he goes, OK, I'm going to bring it back to Australia and I'm going to come and teach my students how to do all of this stuff. 
Yeah. So the period of going away, uh, getting, being exposed to new ideas, exposed to new people, you come back with a personal network and new ideas, new ways of doing things. Uh, it is, it is very enriching. So there is definite value adding going away. Yeah. I would always encourage people to spend some, some time away. Uh, but yeah, I'd love them to come back. Yes, definitely. And what's not to come back to in Australia, even if I, this is my adopted country, I absolutely love it. <laughs> Say to everyone, I'm so fortunate to live here. I've lived in other places and you can't believe how fortunate we are. We're, we're ridiculously fortunate. I think we don't appreciate that enough. Yes, I have to agree with you. So robotics in Australia, where do you, what do you think of where we are now and where do you hope to see us in five years time? Look, I think five years' time, my ambition is pretty much what I, I just mentioned before. I think that we've leveraged the, the really high-quality, internationally recognised robotics research we have here, and we've built out from that into a whole bunch of interconnected companies doing, doing robotics, AI, and vision. And so they're probably companies that are focused on creating the tech and exporting the tech. I hope that there'd be other companies that are maybe taking tech from those companies and applying it to a particular domain, to agriculture, to water pipe inspection, to power line inspection, uh, coral reef inspection. So I think I'd love to see a rich ecosystem of companies uh, all you know, working off, off each other and with each other uh, in, in a way that is sustainable. That, that's what I really love to see. I, I, I think it is achievable. There's enough people, I think, who got the same, the same notion, who sense that this is important. COVID is perhaps a bit of a kick in the pants to change the way we do things. And yeah, let's, let's see what, what, what happens in coming years. Yeah. So for someone at school wanting to get into robotics, what, what advice would you give them? Um, absolutely study maths and physics. Uh, they're really important to, to robotics. It's not just about uh, coding and software. You need to do that too. Uh, but you, it's, it's kind of pointless unless you understand maths and physics. If you're going to do coding, uh, learn Python. If your school doesn't teach you Python, teach yourself Python. Uh, you can you know, download Python, Python uh, tool chain uh, onto any computer, run on any platform uh, to do that. The other thing I'd encourage you to do is to build stuff. Uh, so, you know, learn how to draw things in a CAD system, uh, learn how to 3D print, you know, learn how to solder, right? Learn how to make electronic things, you know, buy Arduino kits or circuit Python kits, play with those, you know, connect them to motors and connect them to sensors, build robots. Even if they're simple primitive machines, you'll learn so much. And so I think if you could do that uh, at high school, uh, you'd be certainly well set for, for then taking on, on robotics at university level. You know, the universities don't have any prerequisites for all of this stuff. So this would put you at a significant advantage with respect to, uh, with respect to other students. And if you're sort of later on in high school, you know, maybe in the last two, three years of high school, then I think it's probably worth trying to check out some of the online robotics content you know, so there'd be things like My Robot Academy, but there's, you know, all sorts of resources out there on, on YouTube. A lot of 
robotics involves theory and mathematics. And at some point you need to move from a sort of a hobbyist mentality where you just kind of hack something together mm -hmm. to understanding the theory so that you can design a robot rather than hack a robot, right? So this is a transition in the way you do things and it happens at university level. And so, you know, that's what you need to be gearing up for. You expect that there, there will be theory uh, and, and, and things that, uh, that you, mathematical principles that you need to apply, linear algebra, matrices and vectors and all those sorts of things. We actually use those things, right, yeah. in robotics. You might learn them at school and think, what's the use of this? Uh, they're really, really useful. So pay attention to that. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, start to explore some of the advanced online content. If it's too scary, you don't understand it, well, don't, don't hurt yourself, you know, just, just back off. Uh, some stuff is more accessible than others, i.e. it's better explained by the presenters or it might be pitched at a lower level. So shop around, find stuff that you like, talk to your friends. Uh, and find content that works works for you. When you come to university, that stuff will be explained to you, but I think you could probably get a bit of a start, early start. Yeah, a little bit of a, ahead of all the other students, and it also builds confidence when you go into a, um, a mentally challenging situation where you go, I've already covered, I, I've got, I've played with this, I've tinkered, so now we're onto yeah. the serious things. Yeah, and once you get to university, in you know the second year of 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 an engineering degree, engineering degrees four year degree course. By the time you get the second year, certainly at our place QUT, you'll actually start to build a robot. So in the first in the first semester of second year, you know we'll get you to build a robot, and then we give you more theory and you have more robot building uh, uh, subjects. Uh, along the way, you have the opportunity to do summer projects. You can go and work at a company over the summer. You can go and hang out in our lab over the summer and learn things. And yeah, lots of opportunities. There's a robotics club at QT where students get together and you know, teach themselves about robotics and have competitions and all of that. So many opportunities once you get to university. And do the universities have competitions amongst themselves for the best whatever robot built? Is that something that's happening in Australia? There are, the universities don't organize it, but I know some of the robot clubs at the individual universities band together to organize competitions. So QT uh, for the last few years has sponsored what they call a droid racing competition. So that's a small, uh, small wheeled vehicle with cameras and computers on board and it has to race at high speed around the, around the track. And, you know, that's a, that's a lot of fun. I've enjoyed uh, judging that. Uh, for, for the last few years. Sadly, this year it didn't happen, but hopefully it'll be back next year. Yeah, I think COVID's impacted all our lives in many ways. And I, I think part of the, we've come to realize the social aspect, how important it is for everyone. Mm. So what's your favorite part of your job? Look, I think it's, it's interacting with people. Although you know, robotics is all about creating machines, uh, it personally, the interaction with my colleagues and with my students is, is what I enjoy. It's what I like about going to, going to the office each day. Gives you your zing. Yeah, it does. Yeah, I, I can, as I say um, to my listeners, um, if you could see Peter's face here, you'd see he's beaming and he absolutely loves his job and he loves what he's talking about. So there's no hardship here for this man going to work. He's not, not, one, he's not one of the 75% of people that don't like their jobs. I can tell you this. So any last thought you'd like to leave um, our listeners with? Any words of advice? Um, anything? I'd like to say that 
I believe robotics is going to be an important technology in this century. Like many technologies, it's double-edged. And I think it behooves anybody who wants to get into robotics is to have a bit of a, is to think deeply about the impact of what it is that you do uh, on individuals and on society. You know, there are issues around jobs and robots. It's not as simplistic as it's often made out to be in the newspapers. There are lots of areas where people don't want to work and robots could work. And I think we should encourage that. There are privacy issues, you know, with artificial intelligence, uh, you know, face recognition, person recognition, drones invading people's privacy. There's the application of all this technology to warfare. Um, whether it's to be used by, you know, Australian armed forces or whether it's used by uh, bad actors. You know, these are all things that we need to think about with the technology that we create. So, yeah, it's exciting. It's wonderful. There's so much possibility. But, yeah, we do need to be aware and we need to be, we need to be responsible. Fabulous advice, Peter. So um, I've looked at your website, um, peter.cork at Peter. It's at Peter.com. Yes, fabulous. I'll put that in the show notes as well. Um, What's the best email address for people who would like to contact you? I have to confess, I'm not very good with email. Uh, Probably send it to my uh, QT email address, which will be on the on the website. But and it's okay. I'll put it in the show notes. So don't even worry about it. I'll find it and pop it in there. So and put something really interesting in the subject line because if you don't, I won't read it. You've been warned. (laughs) Peter, thank you so much for your time. I've thoroughly enjoyed chatting to you. Uh, To our audience, uh, please let us uh, know uh, any feedback. Love to hear from you. And we'll be back in two weeks' time again. Thanks very much, Nikki.